For the past 50 years, the University of Chicago has been conducting one of the largest sociological studies ever created. This study, which they call the General Social Survey, well, it was designed to monitor societal changes here in our nation. And with this as their focus, the GSS researchers have not only monitored societal changes, but this survey was also created as a way to study the growing complexities found here in our American society. And according to the most recent data, this is the first time since this survey was developed 50 years ago, this is the first time that the number of those here in America who never attend church is greater than the number of Americans who regularly attend a religious service. That's right, according to the most recent data, more than one in three Americans say that they never attend any religious services at all. Let that sink in for a moment. That's that's 34% of Americans who now say they never attend religious services. And while it's true that there's a second category, that's a third of Americans who avoid uh, religious services on the regular, uh, it, it's also true that 32% of Americans say they attend religious services uh, you know, around once a month. And, and what this also means then is that the final group of Americans who uh, are almost a third, uh, well, they admit that they faithfully attend church on a regular basis. And, you know, as we drill down into this final group, what we discover is that uh, the regular basis could be any, anywhere from, say, like two or three or four times a week, and only 13% of them actually attend on a weekly basis. Now, think about that for a minute. This 13% of less than a third, or what we might call 4% of Americans, actually attend their fellowship of faith every single week faithfully. Now, in light of this data, I can't help but to wonder how many Americans are actually experiencing true Christian connections which ought to be taking place within their fellowship of faith. And with this question in mind, I want to spend our time today identifying three foundational aspects of what I mean when I say true Christian fellowship. And just to be clear, it'll help you to know that our fellowship is actually founded upon uh, the fact that we are fellow siblings in Christ Jesus. Secondly, we'll consider how our fellowship is founded on the fact that we're also fellow servants. Thirdly and finally, we'll consider how our fellowship is actually founded on the fact that we are fellow soldiers. Well, with this as the outline, let's open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Here we find Paul, he's helping his audience to understand the foundations of true Christian fellowship. Now, as you make your way to the second chapter of Philippians, I want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. I want to remind you, it was in our study last week when we learned about Paul's desire to go and encourage the Christians who were there at the church in Philippi. Unfortunately for him, he couldn't. Paul was unable to go. And the reason why? Well, it's because he was a believer who had been incarcerated for his faith. With that being the case, he was preparing then to send his spiritual son, Timothy, 
to Philippi with this letter in hand so that he could encourage the fellow Christians who were there at that fellowship of faith in Philippi. And now it's here in our text today where we find Paul. He's commending another Christian. He's commending a Gentile believer who had come to him from Philippi. And with this context in mind, let's pick up our study of Philippians chapter 2. We're going to begin reading at verse 25. Here Paul declares, Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick almost unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Now, here in our text today, we find Paul. He's commending this Christian whose name was Epaphroditus. And as we consider the context of this book, well, it seems to me that Epaphroditus was a Christian who had come to Paul from Philippi. As a matter of fact, it's in the final chapter of this epistle where we find Paul, he's referring to the sacrificial support that Epaphroditus brought to him from the fellowship there in Philippi. It's actually in Philippians chapter 4, it's verse 18, there Paul declares, Indeed, I have all and abound, I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma and acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Now, we don't know what this sweet-smelling aroma was. My guess, it was uh, an ancient donut called Crispus Cremus, but uh, maybe, I don't know. Might be pure speculation. But you might be interested to know that the name Epaphroditus actually means devoted to Aphrodite. Devoted to Aphrodite, that's his name. And just to be clear, listen, Aphrodite was primarily known as the goddess of love. She was the goddess of fertility and beauty. And seeing how there were many Greeks at this period in time who devoted their lives to the worship of this fictional deity, Well, we shouldn't be surprised to find a Greek man whose parents named their child uh, devoted to Aphrodite or Epaphroditus. And listen, while Epaphroditus' parents dedicated him to the service of Aphrodite, well, this didn't stop him from eventually becoming uh, a man who was devoted to the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, it doesn't matter where we start. What matters is that we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and allow him to change our lives. Amen. Well, in order to continue to consider the identity of this fellow believer, let's look again there, Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 25. There Paul declares, I considered it necessary to send to you, Epaphroditus, my brother. Now that word brother, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of a male sibling who shared the same parents. At the same time, this Greek word was used more broadly uh, of those who belong to the same national ancestry. And not only that, but this word was also used by believers 
in reference to fellow Christians who have joined together uh, in the bond of affection, uh, which was created by our spiritual adoption. In this sense, Paul was referring to Epaphroditus as his brother because they both belong to the same family of faith. Now, in order to further grasp how, how our faith in Jesus then transforms us into fellow siblings with all of the other born-again believers in the world, well, I want to consider the incredible doctrine that helps us to understand how the spiritual adoption that we receive at the moment of our conversion makes us uh, siblings in Christ. And with this as the focus, if you would hold your place here in the book of Philippians, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles now to Galatians chapter 4. And as you make your way to the fourth chapter of Galatians, I just want to take a moment to remind you that when we were born naturally, we were all born to the family of Adam. You know, at, at the time of our birth, we become part of Adam's family. And, and, and there are many who believe that, well, we're also automatically children of God through our natural birth, but that's, that's not what the Bible tells us. As a matter of fact, the Lord Jesus assures us that we must not only be born, but we must be born again in order to enter the family of God. And it's at that moment when we were born again, we're born of the Spirit, and, and, and then it's there where we become the adopted children of God. Let's consider how Paul puts it here in Galatians chapter 4. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 4. Here he declares, When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's helping the believers at the church there in Galatia to understand that God the Father sent his only begotten son to come and offer himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. And he did this so that those who trust in him could then become the adopted children of God. Now how incredible is that? That God the Father made it possible for us to become his adopted children by faith in Jesus Christ. And so it's at the moment of our conversion, as we're born of the Spirit, that's when we are also sealed by the Holy Spirit into Christ. And at that moment, we become part of the forever family of God. It's at the same point in time when we become fellow siblings with every other believer. You might not know that believer. You might not know that Christian but we are all brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. And Paul put this plainly in Galatians chapter 3. It's verse 26. There Paul declares, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. We are all children of God by our faith in Jesus Christ. Those who place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ have become the adopted children of God. And as the adopted children of God... Every believer has also become a fellow sibling in this spiritual family of faith. And listen, this is true regardless of our race, regardless of our nationality, regardless of our gender, regardless of our financial status, regardless of how much hair we have on our heads, you know, regardless of, regardless of anything. We are children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. The proof of my point can be found in the fact that Paul, who was a Hebrew believer, 
Well, he had no problem acknowledging and embracing Epaphroditus as a fellow brother, despite the fact that Epaphroditus had been born as a devotee unto Aphrodite into a Gentile family. None of that mattered anymore. At the moment of the conversion of Epaphroditus, he became a brother, a spiritual sibling of Paul and every other Christian on the planet in his day and age. And Christian, listen, our fellowship then is based on the circumstances surrounding our spiritual birth, not our natural birth. Our fellowship here at Calvary South Austin and our fellowship with any other believer It's not based on the circumstances surrounding our natural birth. It's it's all about our spiritual birth. The foundation of our fellowship is based on the fact that we are the adopted children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And in order to further grasp this foundation of our fellowship, we should consider the challenge that Paul presented to the Christians who were at the church in Corinth. And so continue holding your place there in the book of Philippians. And let's turn our Bibles to 2 Corinthians. I'd like you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. See, it's here in the sixth chapter of 2 Corinthians where we find Paul encouraging the Christians at the church in Corinth to realize that the adopted children of God can't really experience true fellowship with unbelievers. That's what he's telling us here. And and listen, those who are trying to experience true fellowship with unbelievers will then fail to really enjoy true fellowship with believers, our, our fellow siblings in Christ. And I want to consider how Paul explains it here in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. So look with me here beginning at verse 14. Here Paul declares, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Here in these verses we find Paul He's helping his audience to understand that those who have become the adopted children of God can't really have true fellowship with those who are rejecting Jesus. Now, listen, I'm not saying that you should run home and, and, and unfriend every unbeliever from your social media uh, accounts. That's, that's not the point here. It's not to say that we can't have connections with unbelievers. It's not to say that we shouldn't spend time with unbelieving relatives even but rather it's to help you to understand that you won't have true fellowship. You won't have true Christian fellowship with unbelievers. And the reason why is it's it's impossible to. They're not part of the same family. They're still part of Adam's family, while we are part of Christ's family. There can be no fellowship between righteousness and lawlessness. Therefore, 
Paul says, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Listen, if you're still spending all of your time with unbelievers, trust me when I tell you that you're not engaging in the same sort of fellowship that you could have with believers because there's no true communion between light and darkness. That being the case, the Lord calls every Christian to come out from among them. Notice with me again there in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. It's beginning at verse 17 where Paul declares, come out from among them. This isn't just Pastor Bungie being a legalist. This is what Paul said. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. As I consider this text, I can't help but to think back to the days when my father would say, hey, I don't want you hanging out with those people anymore. Those friends that actually it was someone else's parent telling their kid to stop hanging out with me typically. But, <laughs> but every good parent on the planet at some point in time will tell their kids, stop hanging out with those people. They're bad influences. And oftentimes, you know, kids will be like, oh, you know, dad and mom, they're mean. No, no, they're, they're trying to protect you. And in the same sort of way, but in a perfect way, God the Father says, come out from among them. Stop hanging out and trying to have fellowship with unbelievers. Because you can't. Now, we ought to go and minister to unbelievers. We ought to go and invite them so that they might become part of this forever family. We ought to reach out to unbelievers and present them with the gospel message of grace. We've certainly been called to to even love our enemies and, and help them to know who Jesus is. But if you think that you're experiencing wonderful friendships with unbelievers, the Lord is saying, no, you're not. Because light can't have communion with darkness. There is no fellowship between believers and unbelievers. And with that being the case, it's sad to say that the world is filled with Christians who are saying, no, Dad, you're wrong. The church is filled with Christians who are failing to stand on this, the foundation of fellowship. And the reason why is due to the fact that they'd rather spend time with unbelievers who are leading them astray. And if this sounds like your life, then I encourage you to remember that God the Father is the one who calls us to come out from among them and be separate. Now, this brings us to our second point, because listen, our fellowship is not only founded on the fact that Christians are fellow siblings in Christ Jesus, but our fellowship is also founded on the fact that Christians now are supposed to become fellow servants who are accomplishing the Great Commission together. And and so with that, let's make our way back to Philippians chapter 2. Here we find Paul, he's commending Epaphroditus for the way that he had become a fellow servant. And if you would look with me, beginning of verse 25, here again Paul declares, Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my my brother, my fellow worker and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick, almost unto death, But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, 
and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Now here in these verses, again, we learn that Epaphroditus was not only a fellow sibling by faith in Jesus Christ, but he was also a fellow worker who was spending his time laboring for the Lord. And to be clear, the term fellow worker, which is found back in verse 25, it's translated from a Greek word, which is the basis for our English word synergy. And it's also interesting to note that the original Greek word, it includes two root words, which includes soon, which speaks of companionship, and ergon, which speaks of work or labor. And it's for this reason that the original Greek word, which is made up of these two root words, it can be rendered fellow laborer or fellow helper, and in this, and in this translation, fellow worker. Now, with all this in mind, I want to take a moment to consider a short list of Christians whom Paul referred to as fellow workers. For example, in Romans chapter 16, Paul uses this title in reference to Priscilla, Aquila, Urbanus, and Timothy. He calls all of these fellow workers in Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul also referred to Titus as his partner and his fellow worker. In Colossians chapter 4, Paul refers to Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice as his fellow workers for the kingdom. And in his epistle to Philemon, Paul refers to Philemon, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke as his fellow laborers. Now, as we consider this short list of servants whom Paul identifies as fellow workers, there ought to be no doubt that these believers were enjoying true Christian companionship, which we call fellowship. They enjoyed this as they spent their time serving the Lord together. You know, as Christians serve the Lord together, they're enjoying true fellowship in Christ. Case in point, let's consider again the way that Epaphroditus made this list of fellow workers after agreeing to deliver uh, this financial support and this message to Paul. Again, let's back up. Let's look again at verse 25. Here again, Paul declares, I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. Now here again, we find Paul describing Epaphroditus as a fellow worker. And the first reason why is because he was the sacrificial servant who was willing to travel from Philippi all the way to Rome in order to deliver this message to Paul. The Christians in Philippi, they had a message for Paul. And, I, and I'm guessing maybe they, they showed up, you know, one Sunday and said, okay, who wants to go to Rome? And, you know, and, and I can only imagine all hands stayed uh, very low in the seats. But Epaphroditus stepped forward. Epaphroditus stepped forward and became the messenger who brought this message to Paul. And not only was he the messenger that brought the message, but it's there at the end of verse 25 where Paul informs us of the way that Epaphroditus also ministered to his need. This most certainly includes the financial support that Paul mentions in the final chapter of this book. But listen, it's also important for us to understand the way in which this fellow worker took the time to minister to the spiritual needs of Paul. No doubt Paul was desiring fellowship. No doubt he wanted to spend time at the church there in Philippi. 
And so not only did Epaphroditus bring financial support, not only did he bring a message from the Christians there in Philippi, but he ministered to the, the, the soulish and spiritual needs of Paul. Just to be clear, it'll help you to know that the word ministered, which is found there in verse 25, well, it's translated from a Greek word, which is used of those who are the servants of others. When somebody says, I'm a minister, you know what they're really saying is, I'm a servant. That's what the word minister means. It's a, it's a servant. And listen, this word was used of those who were servants of a king. Uh, the, the same word was also used of those who were servants of the state. But in a Christian context, this word is used of those who serve our Savior, you know, as we set out to accomplish the great commission of Christ Jesus. And as we consider the way that Epaphroditus spent time serving Paul there in his prison, well, we can see how true fellowship then is enjoyed by those who spend time serving our Savior side by side. Please understand that Epaphroditus would have never had fellowship with Paul had he not taken this trip. But because he stepped up, because he served the Lord in this way, he was privileged to go and spend time with Paul, entering into true fellowship with one of the most incredible Christians to ever walk the planet. We should also consider the way that Epaphroditus stepped up to serve regardless of the risks. With this in mind, let's take another look at our text today. I want to back up and begin reading once again at verse 25. Here again, Paul declares, I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. Now, here in these verses, we find Paul, he's assuring the hearts of the Christians who were there at the church in Philippi, and he did this by informing them that he was sending Epaphroditus home. He was sending, them back, he was sending him back to them as soon as he was well enough to travel. So he's sending this letter and saying, hey, Epaphroditus will be coming home soon, so stop worrying. From this, it seems to me that Epaphroditus may have been planning to stay there in Rome a little longer. Maybe he had planned to stay there indefinitely so that he could continue serving Paul there. Unfortunately, it would appear that he ended up getting sick some, at some point in time in this journey. And not only that, but he then, after getting sick, heard that his church was worried about him, so he became worried about them. He's worried about the people who are worried about him. From this, we can see that Epaphroditus was not only a fellow servant who went out of his way to minister to the needs of Paul, but he was also a fellow servant who truly cared for the Christians who were still at his fellowship of faith. He cared about the people who cared about him. And rather than worrying about his own health, he found himself distressed after hearing about the way that his church was concerned for him. And just to be clear, you know, that word distressed, which is found there in verse 26, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of those who are troubled even to the point of depression. It's also a word that would refer to those who had a heavy heart. And I can relate. My heart is very heavy. I think it's like about 20 pounds right now. But seriously, you know, Epaphroditus had a heavy heart. And the reason why is because he didn't want his fellow servants in Philippi worrying about him. It broke his heart to, to realize and to learn that his loved ones, his family of faith, 
was worried about him. And in order to further grasp this situation, let's continue to consider the way that Paul elaborates on the illness of Epaphroditus. If you would look with me again, beginning at verse 27, here again, Paul writes, for indeed he was sick, almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. Now, as we consider what Paul is writing, you might be wondering about the specific sickness of this servant. Sadly, the Greek word, which is rendered sick, it's you know, used in reference to a number of different diseases, some, you know, some worse than others. And in the case of Epaphroditus, what we know is that this was a deadly disease which could have claimed his life. And while this was an extremely serious sickness, It's also important to note here that it could have been something that we would consider to be a very simple disease, like like an intestinal infection, which is better known as dysentery. You know, this is something that we can easily deal with here in the 21st century, but back in the first century, it was something that could kill you. This reminds me of the time when Pastor John and I, we went on a mission trip to Austria, and it was there at a skate park where John decided to drink from an old wooden aqueduct that was bringing snow water from the eastern Alps. You know, the, the, the locals were just like, yeah, it's bringing snow water down, and, and, you know, we all drink out of it. And all the skaters there were sticking their hands in and just pulling out the water and drinking. And, you know, what John failed to realize is that the snow water also included parasites that caused an in- intestinal infection. You see, there's a bunch of critters living up in the Alps that... Uh, Well, it didn't take long until the hills were alive with the sound of dysentery. Thankfully, John was able to get some antibiotics and and it killed the parasites. And so we were able to deal with it, you know, quickly. But, you know, he could have died had had we not gotten the antibiotics. And back in the first century, people died all the time from dysentery. And I can't help but to wonder if Epaphroditus was suffering from dysentery after traveling from Philippi to Rome. You see, drinking the water in Philippi, well, he was used to that. But then, you know, they told him before he left, hey, when you get to Rome, don't drink the water, you know. But they didn't li- he didn't listen. We can't say for certain, and yet it is interesting to note that many people died from dysentery there in the first century. But regardless of the specific sickness, Paul rejoiced as he recounted the way in which his fellow servant had been healed by the mercy of God. He didn't go get antibiotics. He was healed by the mercy of God. That word mercy, which is found there in verse 27, it's translated from a Greek word which speaks of an undeserved compassion And so this supernatural healing of Epaphroditus was a gracious act of compassion, which enabled Epaphroditus, uh, you know, to then, you know, be healed so that he could accomplish the good works that he was called to complete. And in this way, the Lord mercifully enabled Epaphroditus to continue serving him there uh, in Rome and then also afterwards in Philippi. I want to consider how Paul puts it here in our text today. And so if you would look with me again at verse 29, here Paul again declares, Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in esteem because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. For the work of Christ, Epaphroditus came close to death. 
And so he should be held in high respect, according to Paul. The reason why is because he was a fellow servant who was willing to work for the Lord regardless of the risks. And just to be clear, the word work, which is found there in verse 30, well, it's translated from that Greek word ergon, which I want to remind you was one of the root words from the term that was translated fellow worker. In verse 25, Paul says he's a fellow worker. Why? Because he's working. He's a fellow worker because he's doing the work. He's a fellow servant. Why? Because he's serving. You know, it's easy to claim to be a servant of the Lord and yet not serve. If you're going to claim to be a fellow servant, make sure you're serving. Otherwise, it's just lip service. And lip service is really just nothing. It's a bunch of hot air. If we're going to claim to be the servants of the Lord, let's make sure we're serving the Lord. It's the fellow workers who work. In light of the example set by Epaphroditus, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking, am I a fellow servant? Am I a fellow servant who is serving the Lord here within our fellowship of faith? Or am I failing to stand on this foundation of true fellowship, you know, for one reason or another? Are we willing to risk everything so that we can become the fellow servants of our Savior? Or are we still just making excuses for why we really can't engage in the good works of God? With these questions in mind, we should consider the way that Paul encouraged the Christians there in Corinth to become fellow servants who are truly serving our Savior side by side. And it's actually found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where Paul addresses those who are actually using you know, uh, the, their positions in the church to cause divisions with others. And the, and the division was over which servants were better. Rather than just serving, they wanted to figure out which servants were better. You know, there, there were those who had come down from Paul. Others had come down from Apollos. And both of these groups were arguing about which servants were better servants. And so Paul addresses both groups by asking, who is Paul and who is Apollos? But ministers. What's a minister? A servant. Who is Paul and who is Apollos? But servants through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants anything nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's, what? Fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. Christian, listen, our fellowship of faith, it isn't centered around the leaders that we like the most. Our fellowship of faith and our service to God isn't based on which pastors we like the most. And, you know, if you came to the Lord, you know, because of one pastor and you came to the Lord because of some other pastor or something like that, and you start arguing about, you know, which one is better because which pastor is better and these sorts of things, this is all silly because we are all one in Christ. And whether you like Paul or Apollos, what does it matter when really we're just here to serve the Lord Jesus? 
And regardless of whether the Lord calls you to plant or water, whatever the position may be, our fellowship then is found on the fact that we're simply servants of the Lord together. Every Christian has been called to become fellow servants who are working together as one so that together we can accomplish the great commission of Christ Jesus. And as we serve our Savior side by side, we become fellow servants who enjoy true fellowship. Now this brings us to our third and final point because listen, our fellowship is not only founded on the fact that Christians are fellow siblings by faith in Jesus Christ, And our fellowship is not only founded on the fact that Christians are fellow servants, if we step up and serve side by side, but our fellowship is also founded on the fact that Christians are fellow soldiers who have been called uh, to fight the good fight of faith. And with this as the focus, I want to make our way now back to Philippians chapter 2, where we find Paul here. He's commending the way that Epaphroditus had become a fellow soldier uh, who was serving our Savior. If you would, let's take another look at Philippians chapter 2. I want to direct your attention to verse 29. Here Paul declares, Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in high in, in esteem uh, because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Now, here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Paul. He's encouraging the Christians there in Philippi to receive Epaphroditus upon his return. Maybe Paul was concerned that they might not receive him with open arms for one reason or another. And and so he just goes ahead and clears it all up and says he should be received with open arms. And and just to be clear here, the, the word receive, which is found there in verse 29, It's translated from a Greek word, which in this context speaks of those who admit others into their fellowship. He's saying as soon as he gets home, make sure that he is admitted back into the fellowship. There's no reason, you know, to do anything otherwise. And in this sense, Paul was encouraging the Christians there in Philippi to embrace Epaphroditus with open arms as he returned to his own fellowship of faith. And not only that, but he also encouraged them to receive Epaphroditus as if he were a soldier returning from the battlefield. To prove my point, let's take a closer look at the final verses of this chapter. Notice again at verse 29. Here again, Paul declares, receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in esteem because for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. I want to focus your attention on that word service found there at the end of verse 30. The original Greek word was not only used of the Christians who were serving the Lord, but the same word was also used of the soldiers who were serving in the military. And while it's true that Epaphroditus was a a fellow servant who was accomplishing his calling in Christ, well, it's also true that he was sent as a spiritual soldier who was serving in the Lord's army. And I want to consider how Paul puts it back in the beginning of uh, this paragraph. If you will, let's back up and look again at verse 25. Here again, Paul writes, I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and what? Fellow soldier. You see, I'm not making stuff up. Paul called him a fellow soldier. Paul not only saw Epaphroditus as a a fellow sibling, he not only saw him as a fellow servant, 
but Paul saw him as a fellow soldier who was helping to fight the good fight of faith. And in this context, the Greek term translated fellow soldier, it meant so much more than just a mere military man. Paul was actually informing the recipients of this epistle that their beloved Epaphroditus, the one man who stepped forward and said, I'll take the message, I'll I'll bring the, the financial aid to Paul, I'll do this work, Paul says that their beloved Epaphroditus was also a spiritual soldier who was following the commands of Christ Jesus. And while it's true that Paul referred to Epaphroditus as a fellow soldier, it's also true that every born-again believer has also been called to step up and serve as soldiers in the Lord's army. Now, to prove my point, I want to consider the instructions that Paul presented to a pastor named Timothy. And so let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. See, it's here in the second chapter of 2 Timothy where we find Paul. He's actually encouraging Pastor Timothy to remember that we're supposed to be serving our Savior like good soldiers in the Lord's army. And uh, this is in contrast to the soldiers who continue to remain tied down by the affairs of this world. And I want to consider how Paul puts it here in 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 1, here Paul declares, You therefore, my son... Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's encouraging Pastor Timothy to be a leader who was leading by example and to do this by enduring every earthly hardship like a good soldier, you know, who's on the battlefield. You know, when a soldier is on the battlefield and they get news from home that there's, you know, trouble uh, happening or there's issues you know, back at home, you know, that the soldiers just can't just get up and leave. The soldier can't just pick up from the battlefield and say, well, I got, I got troubles back in the States, and so I got to go home. Nope. When you're on the battlefield, you got to deal with the issues at hand. And you have to continue following the orders of your captain. And, and so, you know, Paul here is serving like a captain, talking to Timothy like a lieutenant, and, 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 you know, the lieutenant here uh, has been called to lead the platoon. And in this sense, you know, the Lord Jesus has raised up pastors like Timothy to serve as lieutenants to lead by example over the platoon of troops who are supposed to then follow uh, in that example. So pastors have been called to oversee the band of believers who are stationed at every local church. And in this way, pastors have been called to help their Christian congregation to experiencing, uh, to experience the companionship of fellowship that happens within a platoon of troops who are on the battlefield together. There is a fellowship that happens on the battlefield within a platoon. And that's the kind of fellowship that we ought to be experiencing here within our Christian community. Christians have not only been called to become fellow soldiers, but we've been called to fight the good fight of faith together like a band of believers. And with this as our goal, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking, 
Am I a good soldier? Am I a good soldier who is faithfully serving our commander-in-chief here within our Christian company? Or am I just missing in action every other Sunday because I'm still so entangled in all the things of this world? Are we serving together like fellow soldiers who have each other's backs? Or are we failing to enter into true fellowship with the band of believers that the Lord has stationed here at our church? These questions in mind, I want to take a moment to remind you that only 4% of Americans now say that they actively attend their fellowship of faith on a weekly basis. And if we start stripping away the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and the Muslims and the Catholics, and if we just zero in on the Protestant Christians, what percentage do you think that would be? And knowing that this number will continue to dwindle during these days of great apostasy, I encourage you to remember that the Lord is calling every Christian to become committed members at our fellowship of faith. Whether you're a part of this fellowship or not next Sunday or the Sunday after, it shouldn't even be a question. There shouldn't be a question mark. You're going to come to church on Super Bowl Sunday? Uh, you know, I mean, I, I do like watching men in tights, you know, I mean. Really? We ought to be connected and in fellowship every single Sunday. And listen, we've got a wonderful Wednesday night service as well. Are you entering into true fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or are you still too entangled with the things of this world? With this question of mine, I encourage you to remember that the relational foundation of true Christian fellowship is very simple. Our fellowship is founded on the fact that Christians are fellow siblings who have been adopted into the forever family of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And so we ought to be here together as a family worshiping the Lord. Our fellowship is also founded on the fact that Christians are fellow servants who have been called to work together as we set out to accomplish the great commission of Christ Jesus. And our fellowship is founded on the fact that Christians are fellow soldiers who have been called to fight the good fight of faith with the band of believers that are here in our Christian company. With this as the goal, I encourage you in closing that every Christian ought to make sure that we are standing steadfast upon these three foundations so that we can have true Christian fellowship. Let's pray.